Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the week in news and the most pressing industry issues. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. This episode of the podcast looks at the opportunities in real assets. Real assets can range from gold bullion infrastructure, student property, to aircraft leasing. Broadly speaking, they're assets that are often not correlated to the performance of the wider economy. Joining me today to examine the outlook for real assets in an uncertain world are David Coombs, multi-asset fund manager at Rathbones, and David Conlon, who runs the GCP Asset Backed Fund. David Coombs, if we start with you, to what extent is the performance of real asset investments linked to the outlook for inflation? It, it, it's quite mixed. It, it really depends on the specific asset. So, for example, if we look at property, often uh, rental agreements uh, or lease agreements will have an inflation element built in. Often it's capped, so quite well linked to inflation quite often, but tends to underperform in if you had a hyperinflation inflationary scenario, think 1970s, um, and of course, given the amount of fiscal and monetary easing we have right now, there are people out there, not myself, but who think we might have above average inflation again. So there would be some element of defensiveness in, in, in certain commercial property markets. Gold is not really a, a hedge on inflation. It's Again, it's a hedge against sort of higher inflation or hyperinflation and deflation. And again, with inf- infrastructure, I mean, that's a, that covers a broad category but there again there will be i suspect certain contracts that will have inflation built into those contracts so you know it's it, it's very much the micro rather than just looking straight down so there will be an element of inflation protection but it's kind of look at the detail david conlin as a manager of a fund that has very significant exposure to to real assets how do you how do you view inflation in terms of the potential for it to impact the portfolio of investments. Yeah, so we we look pretty pretty closely at in, at inflation and the um, and the impact on on our assets and the performance of those. So what we what we very much look to do is try and protect ourselves to the extent possible from inflationary rises, and we do this by um, where, where we can and where the, the cash flows obviously allow it by linking the uh, underlying. Uh, interest that we charge on our fund to to inflation so if inflation starts to rise um, and the underlying asset is therefore starting to generate more income um, the interest rate that we, we charge will go up and that in, in effect provides a bit of a hedge um, to ensure that our dividend remains attractive in um, sort, sort of high high inflationary environment and, and it's not being eroded uh, from that so currently around about 40 percent of our assets are um, linked to, to inflation in some way um, and I think, you know, say it, it very much does depend on the, the asset types, as sort of uh, David pointed out, you know, infrastructure assets where there are, you know, straight unitary charges, which are have an RPI linkage or in the renewable sector where the government subsidies will have a uh, direct inflationary linkage, then, then it's quite, quite simple. But equally, you know, you, you hope to, in a, in a rising inflationary market, that you will get some indirect linkage. So... Um, to the extent that construction costs start to rise, et cetera, then the, the overall asset values um, should also start, or the, the, or the existing assets should start to correspond as well. Uh, and that also there should be some indirect 
uh, linkage as well. David Cullen, your your fund, if I've got it right, invests in, in it makes loans to to these companies, right, rather than takes equity stakes. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Thank you. Um, and just moving the conversation on um, a little bit during the sort of market uh, route in in March, uh, some investments that might fall under the category of real assets, including, for example, aircraft leasing, performed very poorly. David Conlon, what does this tell us about real assets as an asset class? Yeah, I, I think you know the, the real asset class here is is very diverse, and so there there will clearly be assets that are performed very negatively as a result of that. And aircraft leasing is obviously one that we've highlighted. Equally, though, there are assets that have continued to perform very well um, during during March and, and indeed currently. So, good examples are the the infrastructure funds or the renewable energy funds supermarket REITs, et cetera, which have actually done um, extremely well in, in this period and held up value. So I think the asset class is is extremely diverse and extremely broad and um, with, with a lot of specialist assets in there. So I think, you know, it, it's hard to very much take a um, broad definition. So actually, because some, some suffer pretty badly in March, that they're all bad. In effect, it, it is that diversity and that specialism that you need to, to look out for. And I think um, some of these assets have shown that there is a real non-correlation to the wider market in the in the product they have, and therefore they have continued to perform very well. David Plumes, as a multi-asset investor, you you try to build portfolios that um, are diversified in many different ways. How do you how do you view real assets in terms of what they offset in in the wider market, and what did March tell you about the effectiveness of real assets as a diversifier? We're quite cautious on using real assets, which might seem odd as a multi-asset manager. I mean, aircraft leasing, we will, we, we would not categorize as an alternative investment as such because of the, the leverage built within most of those companies. I think we need to really kind of look at structure here because some of these real assets linked to leverage are in, in, in retail investments, and that gives them a completely different return risk a stream compared to a fund that would maybe have a three-month or even a 12-month lock-in. Now, the trouble with aircraft leasing is you're linking the this is an asset class that's highly linked to a very volatile sector. And as we've seen, as demand for aircraft falls, and we saw this after 9-11 in 2001, you're suddenly holding on to an asset that no one really wants. And therefore, it's unlikely, you, you're, you'll likely get a default on, 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 the, on the interest payment, and you're probably writing off um, quite a significant amount of the assets, residual value. And the problem with some of these asset classes is that until you get a market event or you get some actual transactions, you're very reliant on model valuations, i.e. by a third party. And, it, and, and that's where your risk is. So we steer clear a lot of these kind of real asset, so-called real assets in um, in, in retail type structures. I mean, renewable and I mean, if we talk about renewable energy and, and student property as well, you've got, you've got to look at the broader sectors in each case. Student property is just a subclass of um, residential property, in my view. And, and if you look at what happened in Aberdeen, for example, when the oil industry started to see huge, huge declines, you saw a lot of rental property coming on the market to challenge student property. Renewable energy right now is being challenged because the oil price is so low. So all of these assets will still have 
competing alternatives with their own cycles that you have to consider. And to look at them on their own is just is, is too simplistic. And as we saw in previous market stress periods, a lot of these asset classes all become illiquid at the same time. And it comes down to who are owning these assets. And often many of the owners of these real assets will have are the same individuals across various asset classes who all need liquidity at the same time. And so you get this kind of correlation, even though in theory it shouldn't be there, but you've got a lot of people trying to raise liquidity to either to invest in, in public markets that have fallen or they're getting cash requirements themselves. So investing in, 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 in these sort of niche asset classes like aircraft leasing, renewable energy, student property, yeah, you need to be really careful because the, the default risk on a lot of these, and a lot of them are, use leverage as well, are quite high. And the minute, the minute you introduce leverage, you introduce higher cyclical risk in my view. David Conlon, to, to what extent do real assets uh, carry um, political risk? Uh, some of the uh, income streams from renewable energy, maybe student property, etc., are ultimately coming from the government in one form or another. And I suppose with government bond yields being at near historic lows, um, many investors may view some real assets as um, an alternative source of income. But is is there that is that political risk uh, significant? Yeah, I think I think so. There's obviously always political risk, be it through taxes or regulation in in sort of any any businesses. But I think um, in some of the funds there is clearly a heightened um, risk of political um, fiscal risk there. In, in the you know renewable funds, obviously quite an easy example in that um, a number of years ago, Spain and Italy retrospectively cut the subsidies that were available. Um, to renewable assets, uh, which obviously had a quite significant impact on the equity value of those those assets. The UK government has obviously historically never done anything like that, but obviously if, if pressure starts to mount with consumer bills or need to reduce those, then this may be something they look at. Equally, PFI, again, was, was quite a target under a Labour government of, um, of, of a way of saving money on the public purse, and again, this could be something that is, is looked at how we come out of it. So, I think you know there is the potential that um, certain asset classes within the real asset space do have, I suppose, a heightened political um, risk, um, and it'd be interesting to see how they they move going forward. And and equally, you know, just the border sector itself, the, the corporation tax uh, reduction didn't come through um, this year as many people had budgeted for, um, which obviously caused some some nav movements across quite a number of funds as well. Um, so, so yeah, I think there, there very much is that risk, but obviously um, you do have the stability of those government cash flows at the moment. And um, to date, certainly the UK government has, uh, has never looked to um, retrospectively change any of the, the tariff or unitary charges that it, that it has put in place. David Coombs, to, to what extent do you um, view some of those uh, assets that we've we've talked about, student property, aircraft leasing, health centres, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as um, alternatives? to government bonds in, in portfolios because the income does ultimately come from from government bodies in, in one way or another. Is it a, is it a way of, of getting those those higher yield for comparable levels of risk? Uh, no, I don't see them as alternative to government bonds in any way, shape or form for a number of reasons. One, because of liquidity risk and ultimately government bonds give you that liquidity when you're seeing it sucked out of markets. And so... They, they provide a very different part of the, port, um, 
in a, in a portfolio construction. So I would see these assets as being just alternative sources of risk and return. And that doesn't mean they're bad or that you shouldn't hold them, but I would not hold them as alternatives to government bonds. If you look at student property, for example, and you talk about political risk, you know, changes to student loans, changing to overseas students coming into the country to study to, which to subsidize university fees for domestic students. There's a lot of political risk around immigration, around educational policy. When you look at uh, even you know, look at gold, even for example, you, know, you had Indian governments changing tra- transaction taxes on on gold transactions a couple of years ago. So, and in property, you know, change. You look what Osborne did with um, stamp duty at, at the upper levels on on residential property uh, in in the UK um, four or five years ago. So, and sometimes politicians make decisions with unintended consequences. So, all of these sectors. You know, aviation, you know, I can't remember the name of the tax on people who travel, but you know, there's always political intervention in, 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 in many of these asset classes. And that's just at the subtle level. Sometimes it's not even intended, let alone when you start getting extreme populist politics. We're seeing a rising trend of both in, 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 in America and also in Europe. So who are also maybe more minded to intervene in some of these, these markets. So... Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That political risk is in, in most investments that we have. You just need to be cognizant of it and factor it into the price and return that you, you, you expect for putting that money at risk. But it's certainly, you know, government bonds are clearly subject to political risk. David Conlon, is it possible to build a portfolio of real assets that's really diversified and, and doesn't leave a client exposed to identical themes? Uh, I very much think so, I suppose. Um... There are so many different themes of real assets out there now. Obviously, we've touched on student accommodation. You've got supported living, you know, the, the strong funds these days. And therefore, I think it becomes very easy to build a diversified portfolio um, within this. Um, so, within your big funds, you've got wind solo again, sort of uh, same subsidies, but different, different obviously, drivers um, of, of power generation. And, and therefore, I think that there is very much a balance that can be achieved quite quite simply when looking at this as an asset class. David Coombs, do you want to take up that point? Is one essentially exposed to quite similar themes when one um, owns um, owned real assets or, or are there some that are quite simply generating returns that are not correlated to others and to wider markets? So I think you can put a, you can put a portfolio together um, as long as you're taking a medium to long-term view. Different asset class have different trends and cycles you know, if you if you take some, some I, I guess you might call them extreme asset classes like i art or wine for example you know, those people who tend to invest in those areas will have a different inflation rate to others it's been like luxury goods versus staples in, in in sort of traditional markets so you can put together a portfolio of, of assets like i said that you need to take leverage out first of all so it's, then you are actually owning the assets and then it depends whether you're renting those assets out or not, because if you rent those assets out, you're then subject to the credit risk of the people that you rent them to. So it, it's, it's not as simple as just buying, buying a, a range of these assets through funds or whatever. It, it's understanding how you own them, how they're being valued, and how you're going to exit them and what your time horizon is. And as long as you take a long-term view and you invest in structures that are appropriate for the asset class you're buying, 
then over a 15, 20-year view, that that's a totally legitimate investment strategy. The problem is, is that far too many people invest in these, expecting them to, to perform in, in sort of market-stressed events and then try to sell. And then you see these huge fluctuations in price versus net asset values. And then, and then people lose their faith in them and then you get a rush to the exit. And that's the problem is when you get people buying these real assets that are clearly not realizable daily, who expect daily liquidity. And that's when it goes wrong. David Conlon, how as, a, as an investor in, in real assets, if you want to um, reduce the level of uh, risk in your portfolio and add some downside protection, um, how can you do that within the world of, of real assets? How does, that, how does that work? There are quite a number of protections, I say, through the, the downsides of, of looking at the diversification. Uh, I think, you know, as David said, um, you really need to look at the, the track record, the asset itself, look at the manager who's who's investing um, as well in their track record and, and how that asset class ha- has performed over a number of periods. But to us and, and, and how we look at things at Gravis, we, we, we like to really pick assets that we think have a, a reason there for being. So actually, you know, there's always going to be bumps in the road. But if there is actually a reason for that asset to be there, there is a structural necessity for that asset, then it should actually command a value even once sort of uh, short-term market uh, fluctuations are taken out. And that's, you know, very much how, how we look to do it in, you know, in my portfolio um, of assets. You know, we've lent to sort of 44 different loans at the moment. Um, a quarter of those loans have actually performed extremely well in the current crisis with, um, you know, increased revenues and are actually doing very well. We, we've obviously got a number that, that that are struggling, but actually significantly less, uh, so around about 12% of the that aren't doing as well as uh, as they previously were. So there, there is a lot to be said for the diversification, but, but equally making sure that those assets are, um, say, that there is a reason for human accommodation. Yeah, that there may be a bump in the road um, going forward to the next term, but but ultimately, if you've got a student accommodation building that's in a good location and provides, you know, a, 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 and is a best-in-class type asset, then ultimately students will come back to those, those locations and those asset classes once um, universities do get back to normal. So you really have to look at sort of each side. But so I, I would very much to, to build in downside so you really look at what the underlying cash flow and asset is that you've got, you know, say how, how structurally sound that is. David Coombs, to, to what extent are, are real assets really evolving into into products that that are about that are about income? And we've discussed aircraft leasing, student property. There are many others. Whereas historically, perhaps real assets were were things like gold, art, and wine, which didn't pay a yield. Is there a, an evolution happening out there? And, and what does that mean, really, for a, a multi-asset investor such as yourself? Again, it depends on your definition of, of, of real assets. I mean, there has definitely been a, sh- a buyer's shift towards assets that generate a level of income above that of the public markets. And we've seen, because of 12 years of quantitative easing and, and almost zero interest rate policies in many developed markets, you've seen people pushing for the mythical 5% income return into these asset classes. And I don't think that's the right way to look at them. You should be looking at these asset classes in their right on a total return basis. And I think that's sometimes why there's been too much leverage involved. So they're, they're buying those alternative streams of income rather than alternative assets to diversify a portfolio. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it is wrong if you're diversifying a high yield or corporate bond portfolio by buying alternative income assets, because you're going to find a lot of the drivers are quite similar. 
So I don't think asset classes have moved towards income. I think it's the buyers who have been pushed into these areas as they've gone into more esoteric credit areas as well, like peer-to-peer lending, micro bonds and, and, and retail bonds and, and other type of investments. It's been this search for risk, uh, <laughs> sorry, Freudian slip, search for yield, which has made a search for greater risk in my view and possibly buying some of these asset classes for not the right reasons. In terms of how, if you are going to buy a portfolio of these assets, how do you, how do you offset the risk? Then you could argue you should buy a 50 year US treasury bond, which would give you duration liquidity if there was a liquidity squeeze on those real assets. And that can in some way be a good diversifier for a real asset portfolio or inflation linked bonds, for example. So I think in summary, it's the buyer that's changed the, you know, the markets provide what the buyer wants and the buyer has been searching for income. So you've seen these types of strategies, come, which originally were with the prop desks and the investment banks 15 years ago, come into the public markets to satisfy that need. David Conlon from Graphis Capital Partners and David Coombs from Rathbones. Uh, thank you both for joining us on the ST Advisor podcast this week. And join us next week for another edition of the podcast. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.